Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. That was Thomas Jefferson's famous affirmation of how important a vital press is to a free society. This is Colleen Chaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs, talking with Andriy Shevchenko, who's trying to build a system of strong, independent journalism in Ukraine. Mr. Shevchenko is currently a World Fellow at Yale University. You began your career as a journalist, and now you're a member of Parliament. And since journalists tend to see themselves in kind of a watchdog role to government, what's that transition been like for you? First of all, great to be with you here, Colleen. Well, uh, I have no idea whether you ever considered a career in politics, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I should tell you that uh, you have pretty uh, you have a lot of things in common, mm -hmm. but there are also striking differences. First of them is uh, uh, in journalism, you really uh, get to see the results of your work quite soon. Right. Uh, so. You go to get uh, uh, your materials, you put the pieces together to make up a report, and you put it on air. S in politics, it's way different. You can spend hours and days and weeks in negotiations, meetings, discussions, and then in the very end of the week, you will go to bed and you will try to think back about the week you have just gone through. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are no concrete, specific results you can really touch. So in politics, it takes a lot more commitment um, patients to wait for the, for the results. Sometimes it takes months or years for them uh, to come. But uh, overall, I still find these two professions uh, to have a lot of uh, things in common. I think uh, both politics and journalism, they're really about public service mm -hmm. in a very wide definition. And I'm quite sure that real big success goes in both professions, goes only to those people who really can put the focus on the other people, not on themselves. This is what journalism is about, and this is what politics in uh, my sense is about as well. And are you a politician for life now, or do you feel that you'll go back to journalism after you've achieved the goals you set out to do in parliament? <laughs> uh, I think that one becomes uh, a journalist nine months before he or she is born. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he or she remains uh, a journalist. He or she never stops being a journalist until the very last day of his or her life. Mm -hmm. But most seriously, uh, I think pretty much the job that I'm in at the moment is also about free press, about making uh, good service for the public. And uh, I do uh, hope to to get more uh, to, to do more practical things uh, in terms of practical journalism. I am considering uh, launching a TV show next year back in Ukraine. It's not going to be a political show. Mm -hmm. Of course, I am aware of the conflict of interest. It's not like half of the day you you could do political job, and the other half of the day you would cover the right. politics. No one would talk to you. Uh, right, but this could be a show about television. Uh huh. I think television, it's not just a wonderful thing. It's really such a powerful thing to talk about. So this is probably what my show will be about. And I also think it's a nice uh, way to say thank you to the profession which made me who I am now. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about your work in that profession. You were a reporter in Ukraine when reporters were being murdered. What was what was that like, and how did you and your colleagues keep going? Well, uh, I think in any profession you choose, it takes a lot of commitment and sometimes sacrifice mm-hmm. to to achieve huge success. And the journalism is not an exception. Uh, in my country, in Ukraine, several years ago, it really was a tough job to be a good journalist. We did have some journalists uh, uh, killed or they went missing. And uh, we had a very sophisticated machine of censorship, which was completely controlled by the central government. Imagine if you work on a national network. So every day you would get these secret instructions from the president's administration with very specific instructions for you what mm-hmm. to do. Like, please put this piece of news number one in your evening newscast. This will be number two piece. This will be number three piece. Please use this kind of sound bites. Do not ever dare to use this kind of footage or those sound bites. So it was a very humiliating situation for mm-hmm. many journalists. And uh, at some point, uh, there were several of us who decided we could not really uh, stand that kind of situation. So some of us, many of us quit their jobs. We got together and this is how we launched the fifth channel. Uh, it was for, for a couple of years, the only TV network which wasn't controlled by the central government. And uh, in the very first days of the Orange Revolution, it was the only network which was covering what was happening on the, stri- on the streets of Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine. How did you get away with that? Well, uh, first, I think the government did not take us seriously enough in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I was one of those who actually launched the channel. And for those couple of years, I was the editor in chief of the channel and one of the presenters. And second, from the very first day, we tried to make sure we had two sides of the story at one table. So we had every night we had someone from from the government and someone from the opposition talking to each other in our studio. It sounds very natural, very obvious, right. and very uh, usual thing here in the United State, States, but not in, not uh, not all over the world. So eventually, when the Orange Revolution times came, and uh, the government started thinking seriously whether it wanted this channel to keep uh, to keep working, um, suddenly there w- we found a lot of people in the government who approached the president of Ukraine and said, well, probably those guys, they're not that bad. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have been to their studio, we have talked to their anchors, and we really think that they, they are capable of, of doing balanced coverage. So as some people say, talk to your enemy. Right. This is probably one of the things which really saved the channel at that time, because we had had a good record of talking, communicated to the both sides of this huge, very dramatic political conflict. So doing this kind of independent, balanced journalism was countercultural. You guys were sort of a rebel force doing that. Is there a large enough core of folks in Ukraine with this kind of experience to build a good independent media? I believe so. Because four years ago, if you came to Ukraine, if you watched the evening news, most of them were really alike because of those secret instructions. Uh You would say this profession is dead. Right. But now, if you go to Ukraine, you would see this profession booming. You would you would see good quality reporting. You would see a lot of wonderful product which is produced by those people. So I'm really sh- uh, I'm, I really feel that Ukraine is now a country of recovered journalism. So this assumption which really inspires me to go forward with this idea of public broadcasting. And tell me what attracts you to the public broadcasting model instead of a private sector. 
I think it's really about good standards of profession. Mm -hmm. No matter what we have around us, an election campaign or a huge privatization scandal, we would like to make sure that there is at least one source of news in the country which is really reliable, mm -hmm. which does not depend on who pays the money to it. And we have several wonderful examples around the world. I think uh, PBS and National Public Radio uh, here in the United States could be wonderful examples of brilliant uh, standards of profession. BBC could be another one. Mm -hmm. And even if we uh, see, even if we take a look at the Eastern Europe, or in other parts of the world, we would find those kind of examples of brilliant, good, fair and balanced reporting. So I do feel that public broadcasting is something which could, could be very good for for uh, for a TV and radio market in my country. Most of private TV and radio networks, uh, they unfortunately have not such a good record mm -hmm. because many of them have gone through censorship through very bad times. So I would like my country to have this very stable island of stability, island of good professional standards. What about other media like print and internet? Do you expect those to remain private? Uh, well, uh, we are talking not about just public broadcasting. More and more often we use the words uh, really public media. Mm -hmm. I think that the web is obviously one of the things we've got to look at if we if we want to, 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 uh, to have this public uh, this product of public importance, uh, influential enough, competitive enough. So it's not really about public broadcasting the way it was in 1950s or mm -hmm. 1960s. It definitely should be something more sophisticated. And what kind of support is there for this in Ukraine? Well, uh, you would hardly find someone who is strictly against that. Mm-hmm. But you would also have a tough time finding people who would be ready to commit their time and effort to do so. Obviously, uh, we still have uh, state-owned media, both in broadcasting and in print. And uh, obviously, whatever government is in power, mm -hmm. whatever political party is in power, is not always happy with giving away <laughs> yeah. this ownership with, with the state-owned media. So uh, it does uh, take a lot of uh, commitment, uh, patience, <laughs> to go forward with this idea. But I'm pretty sure it's something my country is going to have. Uh, if we look at the neighbors, we see many other Eastern European countries which have successfully gone through this. Uh, well, we see some other examples like Russia or Belarus, which have chosen a different path, mm -hmm. strengthening state-owned media. And uh, I'm sh quite sure when we take a closer look at these two models, we know we which way is really better for the country. And it's really the path of independent media and of and of public uh, of public broadcasting, which will be controlled by the public and uh, and which will be uh, reporting to the public. So you see some sort of independent board would oversee it as opposed oh, to whoever's ruling. Absolutely. And wouldn't the existence of the state-owned media to start with be in, in some ways an advantage because you've got the infrastructure there. You just need to raise standards and make it more independent. It's not like you're building things from scratch, spending a ton of money. Makes sense, and uh, it could be an advantage. One bad thing about that is that uh, state-owned media, they have terrible reputation mm -hmm. because for many decades people uh, knew that those media, they were just mouthpieces for propaganda. 
20 or 30 years ago, they were mouthpieces for communist propaganda. And recently, they were mouthpieces for other kinds of propaganda. So we've got to deal with all these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got to change that perception. Build the product and then rebrand it for the public. Absolutely. I'm interested in what you think about the state of journalism in the United States. You've been here during an interesting time, election coverage. Well, uh, I really love the American media. (laughs) I am a fanatic American TV watcher, Uh viewer, (laughs) and uh, I'm capable of seeing good and bad things there. (laughs) But I think it's really doing a wonderful job, uh, not just in entertaining people, but also in uh, dragging their attention, attention to issues. Uh, I think the world which usually uh, talks about only about this Hollywood style uh, or Oscar ceremony style mm-hmm. uh, election campaigns really underestimates the work which which is done by American journalists during uh, campaigns. I think that uh, the coverage which I saw is really uh, issue focused, issue oriented, and it's something really good. If you want to get good information, good knowledge about what the candidates are standing for, you really have plenty of opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the amount of uh, negative information, the amount of negative ads is just trem- tremendous. And I don't really see many other countries in the world which uh, would have that much negative information during the election campaigns, mm-hmm. which are, by the way, so unbelievably long. Yes, they are. <laughs> like, if you think about Ukraine, in Ukraine, um, during the election campaign, the competing parties or candidates, they're not allowed to mention their opponents' names in the ads. We have some European countries oh, wow. which do not allow the TV, the political TV ads be shorter than 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. They would encourage parties and candidates choose some longer, larger formats to express what they're really standing for. So in many ways, I think many Americans, they do not even realize how special and how different the election coverage uh, is from, from the rest. Uh, of the world. And also, one more thing which really surprised me is that uh, I've seen so much biased coverage, Uh passionate uh, biased coverage, and it's something which I did not expect to see here. Because for many years we had American experts who would come to Ukraine or to other countries Mm -hmm. in my part of the world, and they would really uh, talk a lot about staying fair, balanced, uh, above the battle, above the fire, uh-huh. have a stopwatch to calculate how many seconds this candidate ha- has and the other w- uh, the other does. And then you come to the States <laughs> <laughs> and you see plenty of uh, TV anchors who who really take sides, mm-hmm. who are really passionate about the side they, they take. Uh, you see that one candidate double scores the other one when it comes to front page stories and right. things like that. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. Each country is to decide. But it's really different from the traditional standards of profession, the way we learn them. Right. And the way we present them. Yeah. Right. Tell me a little bit about your World Fellows experience. What's some of the big things that you'll be taking away with you? Well, it's a lifetime experience. I think it's something which I will remember is probably the best days, or the best months of uh, my life uh, until the very last day uh, I live. Um, First, I think it's a very trans- transformational experience for, for me and for the other World Fellows. It's really about, about deconstruction and reconstruction of yourself. Hmm. 
And uh, I think uh, each of us will be able to make a way more significant impact back home. I keep thinking about how I can bring the CL experience home. Uh, and when I go back to the Ukrainian parliament, how I can really get a lot of use of that right away, mm-hmm. not in decades or in centuries from now, but uh, now and here. Second, I do hope that this program is a wonderful way for Yale to spread the word out on this wonderful school, on this wonderful, wonderful institution. Just to, prov- to give you one example, when I came to Yale and uh, I checked the Wikipedia uh, page in Ukraine, in mm-hmm. Ukrainian, I did not find a Yale page there. And uh, I can say that uh, I should confess that th- there was a Harvard page <laughs> <laughs> which had been made several years earlier. Yeah, well, Wikipedia is beneath us. <laughs> so, so now, uh, now there is a there is a Yale page in Ukrainian. Did you make <laughs> it? Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, it wasn't me, but uh, there there is there is a page which exists now. And I'm pretty sure that there will be plenty of other ways that Yale, as this wonderful institution, can benefit uh, of our presence here in the future. And third and final, uh, only here I really realized that the world does not really know a lot about the system of education in America. Mm-hmm. And it's something this country can really be proud of. Um, mm-hmm. It's still for me a big question to which extent Yale is representative to the United States of America. But if you think of the world, which considers most of the Americans very straightforward uh, thinking people, very pragmatic, sometimes uh, shallow thinking or superficial. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we come to Yale and you find this uh, as a wonderful place for intellectual play, for humor, for creativity, for diversity for self-irony, for Mm -hmm. self-criticism. And uh, it's such a high bar, uh, probably the whole country is really to to go up to to this bar and the whole world is probably to to, to go up to to this bar. I have some friends of mine uh, who are also world fellows who now say, gosh, finally I understand uh, what can really make my country strong, successful, this kind of education. Mm -hmm. So I I think that uh, Education is something which uh, the United States uh, uh, could really sell better and it could really change the perception of this whole country. Thank you. That was Andriy Shevchenko, who's participating in Yale's World Fellows Program for Emerging Leaders Around the Globe. For more information, please visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.